Race courses provide a series of challenges. While going as fast as possible, you have to stay inside the course. How can we break down and understand these challenges? We'll review an article by Luke McMillan called A Rational Approach to Racing Game Track Design, which uses an understanding of cars to build five metrics of track design. Tonight, on the Commune Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Commune Podcast. We are back this time to talk about F-Zero X, a racing game for the Nintendo 64. And with me are two esteemed colleagues. Adrian, how are you doing? Pretty good. How about you? I'm doing swell. I like F-Zero X. It puts me in a good mood, so I'm glad to talk about it. Yeah, the lurking horror nearly killed us. Oh my god. Yeah, it was like a... It's like a form fits function, you know? The, the game... No, I don't know, because I didn't play that game, because it seemed boring. <laughs> and yourself, <laughs> how are you? Uh, fine, yeah. I'm happy to be playing a real game again. <laughs> a real game? What was the one before? Uh, I, I just meant the lurking heart. Well, the last good one we've done... This is all terrible material for uh, to put in the podcast, but... Last good one we did was Star Tropics. We played yeah. fucking Echo. <laughs> Echo was in between Lurking Horror and Star Tropics, and that dragged on forever too, because also no one yeah. cared. So we just need to play Nintendo games. Yeah, but then, uh, never mind. You know what I think. <laughs> so anyway, Adrian, who do you play as in F Zero X? Right now, I've been. Uh, sticking to Captain Falcon mostly because you can customize the cars themselves. I wanted to understand that vehicle as best I could for dealing with the tracks instead of changing them around like I did in Wave Race, which in many ways did prolong me completing those tracks. So I'm getting through these cups faster, but uh, I haven't experimented as much around. So you haven't had to experiment to find the best fit for you. You just, you were able to pick up Captain Falcon and go from there. Yeah, and the thing is, I'm pretty sure I know there are other racers better than Captain Falcon, because I know for a fact in F-Zero GX, I mained White Cat, uh, some blue dinosaur guy. I think the... <laughs> yeah, I, I don't remember. White Cat, blue dinosaur. White, yeah. White Cat is the car. I think her name is Jody White or something. Jody, oh, Jody yeah. Summer. Yeah. yeah. I mean her, I mean some blue dinosaur guy, I don't remember his name. And I think uh, Mrs. Meteor or something like that. Yeah, that's uh, one of them. Yeah, those were the ones that I made in FCR GX. So I know there are cars, that I pre- cars and characters I prefer over Captain Falcon. I just haven't got around to them yet. So yourself, who do you main as in F-Zero-X? I don't really main as anyone in particular. I feel like F-Zero-X is a game that puts a lot of emphasis on having 8 million different racers that are all different. But part of that is also that the differences between them are subtle. So if I'm, like, stuck on a circuit, I'll play it with five different guys. If I had to pick a favorite, I don't know, Pico, Wild Goose, I guess. How did you land on him, and what makes a racer that you like? I guess it's... Two most important traits are I like someone with good boost. It 
in my opinion, just makes the game more fun to play, uh, having someone that can get faster. And the guys that have better grip or are less slippery, which also means better body, I just find easier to play. So he's got a good combination of those two traits. Okay. So would you say you have an understanding of the physics in F0X, how your cars control? Yeah, I have a pretty good understanding of the physics of the game. Okay. And Adrian, it seems like you also had a pretty good understanding. I feel like I do. I guess the one thing that probably threw me for loop, at least when I started playing as GX, was the grip. And I'm pretty sure it, it functions very similar to, um, you know, t- tires slipping, you know, when they go too fast in real life. That is, once you hit a certain speed and you turn too sharply, the car starts drifting because it's, you know, its grip is broken. Yeah, that's an accurate description of how it works. Yeah. So naturally, when I'm boosting, I'm more cautious and more likely to use the side bash to make those turns so that I don't start careening into a, to a wall that it... Oh, same with um, deliberately hitting the strafe in the opposite directions in case, for whatever reason, I do actually want to drift. I haven't implemented that as much, though. Yeah, I just learned about that today, and I understand so little of F0X that that doesn't make any sense to me, why you would want that. Right, it's the same way how I haven't even bothered using the brake. I pretty much hold A and rarely ever let go. Oh, yeah, I should try using the brake while I'm playing right now. What's that, down C? So that's down on the right control stick for me? That's <laughs> yeah, well, when you're playing on Wii U, it's a lot easier to put the brake on something you can use. I'm doing it with my index finger right now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> First, let's review Luke McMillan's metrics. In five steps, they measure key aspects of a race course. The goal is to break down any given race course so that we can appreciate it piece by piece, and in that way we can build a broader understanding based on its finer details. I don't have a good sense of what makes racing game design. I even don't have a good sense of how to play racing games. So I was looking around and I I found an article on Gama Sutra by Luke McMillan. He works at, or he's a professor at the um... Gama Sutra. No, 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 no. He's a professor at Gama Sutra. He's a professor at Quantum College Brisbane in Australia. Quantum College? Yeah. He wrote an article called A Rational Approach to Racing Game Track Design. In that article, he calls the physics of the car the vehicle dynamics. And this refers to a set of, uh, or a way of talking about forces on a vehicle, where involving, you know, when you turn, that's lateral movement. When you press the accelerator, that's longitudinal movement, etc., etc. And it's from this whole framework of how to think about car physics. And the whole point of the article is to discuss dynamics in terms of five metrics of track design, which is just five different ways to think about parts of a track that gives them their defining features. 
The first is the race line, and I should also mention, his metrics come at the approach of a designer. So, you know, if you're making a racing game, these are the things you want to think about. So sometimes they seem a little backwards to us. For instance, uh, his first metric is the race line, which is the fastest way through a course. And so his approach was to think about the race line and then design a track around it, which is a little weird as a player, but still, as a player, you would want to know the fastest way through a course, so it's still useful for us to talk about. So that's the race line, just the fastest way through a course. His second metric were the clipping points, and these are just, on particularly tight turns, you'll have to clip the inside of the turn so that you touch just the innermost edge of the course. And so those are the clipping points, which are important to know because they're important for executing turns correctly. Sorry, I don't think he actually means you're supposed to touch the course, though, right? That you get as close as possible without getting into the rough. Right. It's like a, a limit on your movement. The closer you are, the better. Yeah, exactly. That, so that if you're at the innermost point of the turn, you'll be faster than someone who's a little bit farther out than you. His third metric is the track width. And this one's pretty easy. It's just the wider the track is, the easier it is to execute. So you'll be able to take turns more gingerly. You'll be able to pass other racers more easily. Stuff like that. His fourth is the camber, which is how the road tilts from left and right. So one classic example is that if a turn is on camber, that means it's tilted downward towards the inside of the turn. And in standard car racing, you'll have certain gravitational forces, meaning that an on camber turn is easier to turn into because you're basically the car is pulling you down into the turn, so you don't have to try so hard to turn. And his fifth is height variation, which is just when you crest over hills and go down through valleys. And this has a more generic impact on racing, where when you're uh, going down, you have a greater line of sight, which allows you to predict further into the future, whereas if you're going up a hill, you can't see so far, so you might get blindsided by something you don't see. It's also good for variety, and he makes a point about how you can see vistas this way. With metrics under our belt, Let's apply them. Adrian is here to cover Mute City 3. This course brings out your car's airborne control, which is a fairly unique aspect of F-Zero X. To discuss Luke McMillan's metrics in terms of something concrete, Adrian, I've asked you to pick a track. What track is this? This is Wheat City 3. It is the last track on King's Expert. It's the last track on the King's Cup. And what is what's, what's the nickname of the track? It's not just Wheat City 3. Wait, wait, hang on. Let me... Do you want to jump to something? Yeah. Adrian, say that again. It's Jumps of Doom. Okay. Adrian, how sharp are the corners in Mute City 3? Right, so Mute City 3, a lot of 90-degree turns. That's uh, one thing. Actually, pretty much all of them are 90-degree turns, actually. They are, yeah. Of course, if you're taking the jumps, you don't have to make some of those 90-degree turns. 
Right, some of them you can cut by that. And how far apart are the turns generally? Towards the beginning, quite a few of the, the 90 degree turns are packed close together. Then you meet with a couple of straightaways, and then you get another cluster of 90 degree turns that are in close arrangement with each other, and then a few more straightaways. So it sounds like um, you might divide the course into four parts. The first part is a cluster of turns, second part is some straightways, third part is a cluster of turns, and then the fourth part is uh, straightways? Yeah. How would you characterize the flow of the track based on that? Like when you can go fast and when you can go slow? As far as like when you want to boost, you naturally want to do that on the straightaways. You don't want to do it, you know, in the, the middle of the turns, so you and accidentally ram yourself into the wall, especially when those two turns are close to each other. So you're going to be making a turn fairly quickly, so don't want to boost there. Yeah, it sounds like you have some stark contrasts there, where at the beginning and towards the middle of the course, you're going to go pretty slow, and then you get long straightways to build up your speed. Yeah. I know there are some turns that are actually so close in together that you can almost, almost like cut in between them. Yeah, they're... A couple that you can definitely cut through. Yeah. So when you say cut through... As if you have to do very little turning for the 90 degree turns because there's just enough space in between them that you can hit a sort of sweet spot where you're mostly moving in a straight line. You don't have to curve all that much. So this is annoying, but if you look at the map and count the turns, like the 6th and 7th turn of this are a good example. So you're talking about the cluster towards the middle. Yeah. Uh, so, like, 6 and 7 is almost an S, basically, and that's one of the places where you can cut through, and you don't have to come all the way in line with the course before you make the next turn, basically. So what you're talking about there is how you can exit one turn favorably to then enter another turn. Right, so when you exit turn 6, you're pointed towards your clipping point for turn 7. Right. I've also noticed that F0X likes to give you long straightaways at the end of the course, which gives you plenty of time to boost and surpass anyone in front of you. Yeah, that is a pretty common element of, I feel like, all the courses. You've always got that final straightaway. Adrian, how would you characterize the track width? Is it pretty uniform? Does it change? It does change. In fact, where the top of the top part of the map is, where you see those two long straightaways, that's where it's also pretty narrow. Not only that, there's no rails on that part either. So just that one little turn in between, or sorry, those two turns that connect the two long straightaways is the thing you want to be careful of the most so that you don't accidentally throw yourself off the course. That's where it gets thin? Yeah, thinner compared to, um, I think it's about even space actually throughout the whole thing. Yeah, it kind of is. Never mind. So the track width is mostly constant. That's just the one section of the, the course where they take away the rails, and it's much more dangerous. So that keeps that middle section where it's mostly straightaways interesting? Yeah, that's also where your jumps are. The jumps of doom, as the course is named after. So actually, something Adrian brings up that I think is sort of a metric unto itself that doesn't apply to all games necessarily, is the what's on the edges of the course, right? In F-Zero, a very important characteristic of the courses is that sometimes there are walls on the either side and sometimes there aren't walls. And of course, if there's no wall there and you miss your turn or you go outside the track with, then you lose the race. If there's a wall there, 
there's a penalty, et cetera, but you keep going. So that's a important characteristic in this particular racing game. Um, same with those jumps, you know, level elements like those that wasn't stated in the article. Those are also important to the race because if I'm not wrong, when you are launched off into the air, you actually go faster. And that's also where even though walls act as safety when you're on the ground, when you're in the air, it doesn't matter. You're going to you fly right over them. So, <laughs> right. So even in the safe areas, those can still become dangerous by virtue of those jumps being where they are. And taking the jumps is optional. So you're assuming an inherent risk by trying to cut around the corners. Mm -hmm. The cars also have flying physics. When you're in the air, that's when the mass of the car matters. So they each descend differently. And that's when tilting up and down the stick controls the pitch of the car. And you want to be real careful with how you do that. They like glide downwards. Yeah. They accelerate due to gravity. So when you're on the track, you're not getting any acceleration due to gravity because you're at a, a constant altitude. When you're 20 feet above the track, you can take advantage of that acceleration and translate it into forward momentum or forward velocity. Does this road tilt at all? Does it have any camber? Nope. This track is mostly flat. There's no camber at all. Okay. Camber wouldn't do much of anything in F-Zero because gravity is always perpendicular to the track. And it's where you get those half pipe sections or full pipe sections where you're going all Mario Galaxy, going all around the, the pipe. That's not entirely true that it doesn't have an effect. So oh. you guys have described how gravity or camber makes gravity a factor. And Adrian, I do believe you're right in terms of the physics that you don't slide towards the center of a turn. But camber still has an effect on a turn because it lessens the angle of it. Even oh, if yeah. like a 90 degree turn with a really strong camber is not a 90 degree turn at all. It's uh, a much softer turn. The perfect example is silence where you'll look at the map and it looks like a circle, but then you actually drive on it and you're just going straight. Right, the Mobius strip track. Yeah, so that, that is something he mentions in his article that I think he specifically cites Daytona USA, which is something I never would have thought of. He says Daytona USA uses camber to make really sharp turns seem easy, and or it doesn't make them seem easy. It makes them easy while they still seem really sharp to add like a greater excitement factor to the game. Right. Luke McMillan wrote his article as a way to design tracks to quote unquote empower the player, which is a matter of like creating tracks in the video game that they couldn't do in real life and then getting the player to do them in video games in an unrealistic way. And so part of it is like a like a deception that where you try to present something that looks fancy, but executing it is not as fancy. Right. His intro is like, look, we can't all be race car drivers, but isn't it sweet to pretend we are? And this is how you make people feel like a race car driver. Right. That has a little bit less of an impact on F-Zero where none of us hope to be F-Zero racers. Mm, I think it'd be pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about signing up next year. So, Adrian, you mentioned that there were jumps in this course. Could you describe a little how the height variation impacts how you play? So there's no height variation within the track. But I guess we can throw the jumps in there and that you can 
use them to cut off parts of the turns and parts of the track and use it to accelerate. Even if you can't ride the road up into the sky, moving your car up into the sky gives you unique advantages. Yeah. It definitely gives you that look-ahead factor that he was talking about. Mm -hmm. So, Adrian, what gives your track Mute Zero through... Uh, good lord. <laughs> Mute Zero. <laughs> yeah, Zero needs to shut the hell up. <laughs> um, what gives Mute Zero... God damn it. Okay, hold on. I'm going to wait for you to finish laughing. What gives Mute City 3 its identity? It's one of the most turn-oriented tracks in the game. Most of the other courses usually have, you know, smoother, not all sharp 90-degree turns, whereas this track is exclusively the sharpest turns in the game. Yeah, they're all 90 degrees. Yeah, and it also features an element that becomes more common as you get into the later tracks, which is no, rail, no rails. 90-degree turns aren't the sharpest, just so it's clear. Well, yeah, that's I know, but it's the sharpest ones that I've seen. Well, no, I'm sorry, that hand no. Joker, the Joker like, track. Yeah, big hand. Right, that big hand be more intense. But they are noticeably sharp, and there's no ginger turns. It's all the 90 degrees. Yeah. Yep. So what elements of your track are forgiving? Or, like, allow you to build up speed? Well, definitely the straightaways, but... Naturally, it's the end of those straightaways that are probably the most unforgiving. <laughs> the fact that you can build up so much speed is a curse and a blessing, where um, because the turns are so sharp, you don't have any warning time to shed speed before you have to take those sharper turns. So the fact that you can build up so much speed allows you to pass people, but also gets you into trouble with turns if you're not careful. Yeah, makes it that much easier to, as you're making one of those 90-degree turns, to not quite make it and then slide into the outer wall. What does Captain Falcon sound like when he falls off the course? Ooh. And then he blows up. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah the <laughs> water in this game is very explosive. I don't know what they put in that. The what? The water thing? The water is very explosive. I think they just self-destruct their cars. They're like, go out, I lost, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the end of their life at that point. <laughs> so I another thing about Mute City 3 that is unique, you know, it's flat, it's got the sharp turns. I think maybe not entirely unique to this course, but it amps up the risk-reward that Drives all racing games, and s in particular, in the sense drives of... Drives all racing? Jeez. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. The one that drives a car in all the racing games. Uh, <laughs> in that anything that you can do, like, the two biggest ways to manually increase your speed, ignoring, like, you know, just driving on the correct racing line, are boosting and hitting jumps and getting that type of uh, gravitational acceleration we were talking about. And Mute City 3 puts death stakes on both of them. Like, you can't just hit a jump and go straight. You have to hit a jump at the right angle to stay on the course. You die. So if you want to get speed that way, you got to risk death. And same thing on the straightaway. You know the straightaway is going to end without a wall to catch you. So you have to make the decision that I'm going to boost here and 
you know, I have to be ready that if I screw up the turn at the end, or if I have too much speed at the end, it's going to kill me. Yeah. So I feel like it, it's a good closer to the King circuit because of that. Another interesting point with the uh, the risk reward is on those straightaways, or whenever you're going, you know, incredibly fast, and depending on what car you have, that also means putting you closer at losing your grip, which naturally puts a damper in your ability to make some of those turns. So either get good at knowing where that racing line is so that you can make it even if your grip breaks, or get good at the side bash, or slow down. That too. Uh, another thing about Meet City 3 that isn't really important to this conversation and therefore maybe edit it out is that the non-camber thing always makes you think of regular F-Zero. So like any track that doesn't have camber, I'm like, what is this fucking F-Zero? Yeah, but there's also the 90 degree turns. Yeah, that as well. So that that track is one in particular that really reminds me of the first game. I don't know if it is specifically a remake of a track from the first game. Not to my knowledge. Next up is Yourself with Devil's Forest 2. It features a variety of turns and track widths, and it's got tricky hills. I'd like to talk about Devil's Forest 2. The up and down jumps, I think it's called, up and down something. I. Uh, yeah, I think it's just called Up and Down. Up and Down the Street. So the general idea is that they're up and down jumps. <laughs> oh. uh, so how sharp are the corners in Desert Devil's Forest 2? <laughs> the corners are pretty gentle for the most part. This is one of those tracks that uses camber in the way that I was just talking about in the previous segment, where... It looks like, if you look at the map of the course, it looks like there are a bunch of big turns in it and some 90-degree and 270-degree turns, but they're all at a, like, 45-degree camber, so they're actually really gentle turns. I find that makes it a little harder to gauge how to turn. When it has such a sheer camber, but the course is thin, I'm not sure how to navigate through. That's true. I guess that's one of those things you learn from experience, but I guess since it is always going to make the turn more forgiving, or at least always in in, in camber, I think, makes the turn more camber. forgiving. On camber. Yeah, yeah. Um, usually doesn't hurt me too bad, I feel like. There is one particular turn or sequence of turns in Devil's Forest 2, is kind of difficult. Uh, there's like, you can barely see it on the map, but there's an S turn towards the end. Uh, yeah, I hate that. <clears throat> yeah. And the game uses this a couple times. That's not unique to this course. I think Big Blue is the first time you see it. Mm-hmm. So it's tight enough that I don't believe you can just cut a straight line through it. And it is brutal when you're in the middle of traffic trying not to hit walls on those. So that's one turn where you don't have a really graceful entry exit point. Those two turns are smushed together. And how do you deal with that? I generally try to 
have not that much speed going into it, but also when you do sharp turns or you use the turning mechanics in F-Series, you shed a lot of speed. So that doesn't matter too much. I end up basically going full tilt left and then full tilt right to get through it. And when I say full tilt, I mean holding the shoulder button. Okay. So in general, the course has a lot of very slight turns and then that one compact S-turn way at the end. Right. So up to that point, it's a, a very gentle course by turning standards. How wide is the course and is it regular? So this is one that's variable. That S-turn we were just talking about, the course narrows at the same time as it takes those sharp turns. So that makes it that much more difficult. For the most part, this is what I would call a wide track. There's enough room for a lot of air on turns without, you know, actually hitting a wall. And since we don't have a metric to talk about walls, I'll just mention in, in this part that there are walls on the entire course here. Right. I actually thought it was kind of a thin track. I have trouble passing people on this course. Okay. Um, it's possible my sense of it is off. I think the uh, gentle turns and the large camber might be misleading and make it seem wider than it actually is. It definitely does narrow it. We're narrow out at the end, though. I think we can all be on the same page on that. <laughs> yeah, definitely does. This course also doesn't have much of the final straightaway. You pretty much come right out of that S turn. There's a healing strip, right? Yeah, and that's slightly curved. It's not straight. Or it's maybe straight for a second. But then there's a turn after the healing strip and then the finish line. Yeah, that is a kind of quirky ending. Yeah, we'll move on to the other ones, and I'll talk about it in summary after that. And you mentioned this course does have camber. Is it all on camber? I do believe it's all on camber, and to be totally honest, I can't think of an example of off camber in F0X. We could talk about how that relates to the pipe courses, like Big Blue, which yeah. I guess are sort of off camber in some Oh, yeah. Senses. But other than that, I think that being on camber all the time plays into F-Zero's sense of speed. Admittedly, I didn't finish that entire article, but I read through the part about camber and, of course, about how it's meant to increase your sense of speed. So off camber just seems like it would slow the game down. Yeah. So F-Zero avoids that. This is maybe off topic, but on the pipe courses... I need to pay attention to camber to make a good time so that if I'm on the outside of the pipe while it's turning, I either lose a lot of speed or I'll just drive right off. Whereas I always try to be into the like inside of a turn so that I'm in the on-camber part of the pipe. Right. And part of that is just the inside of a turn, even more so when you're in that situation, is the shortest path. Right. And what's the camber of that S turn at the end. I think it's flat at that point. Yeah, I think so. Is there any variation in height? This is actually one place where I'm not quite sure how to apply the metrics, and I'll get into more criticism of them in a second, but I don't really know what height means. Like, there are hills in this course, the up and down, but that's technically camber, and specifically when he discusses camber, he says 
variations to pitch and roll. And, uh, you know, a hill would be a pitch, change of pitch. Sure. So I don't know how that qualifies by that standard. So these metrics are not all entirely exclusive because the race line will be defined by the track width and clipping points are on the race line. And I think part of that is that camber will affect your height variation, but height variation is worth considering in and of itself because it creates memorable moments and it limits your view. Okay. Just treating those as height variation, there are a series of hills at the beginning of the course that each is uh, has a boost pad leading into it. I guess I shouldn't talk about boost pads because that's just making things more complicated. The effect that the hills have, actually, in this case, it limits your view because they go up from where the starting height of the court is, basically, mm -hmm. course is. So they're basically blocking you from seeing what's ahead. And the effect that that has is that when combined with your speed and the fact that you get airborne over these hills, you can't see what's coming in advance, and it makes it easy to fall off the course there. Because as we discussed, even if there are walls, if you're airborne, you can fall off. So there's not too much curvature there. But if you're coming, you know, at a weird angle or whatever, over the hill or one of the other racers bumps you, or for whatever reason, you're not perfectly in line with the track, then the vision there can really make it, the course, difficult. Yeah, in the tension of a Grand Prix, it's... It's stupid, but it is easy to fall off. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing that they do is, uh, as we discussed with uh, Meet City 3, they, uh, or the time in the air increases your speed uh, if you angle correctly. So you've got like a bunch of consecutive opportunities to increase your speed in this way. And you can come out of that segment with the three hills going really damn fast. Yeah, which is nice when you come into that uh, on-camber turn. Yeah. Right, so that ultimately plays into the speed of the course. Yeah, and another way that um, another way that they can almost throw you off the course is the way the boost pads are set up with each jump so that they force you to turn. But you got to be careful not to overshoot your turn, otherwise you'll throw yourself right off the course. Right, so like even if you're just doing a time trial and you've got no other racers there, if you're trying to maximize your speed, you still have to tweak your course a little bit, yep. which is another um, a death risk reward like we were talking about. Yeah. Um, you don't have to hit the boost pads if you're worried about falling off. Yeah. You can play it safe and go straight or take it risky and aim for the boost pads as you jump. In fact, you can even lessen the jumps if you hold up on the stick early so that you don't go very high off the ground at all. Yeah, I'm not positive. I actually want to test this while we're talking. I know in, there are some hills where you can completely stay on the ground by holding up. I don't think you can do that here. It'll depend on your mass and speed. Okay, yeah, that's... I mean, I took that for granted. Yeah, when I was playing through one beginner, I definitely did that, and then I tried it on standard, and I just killed myself that much faster. Yeah, it uh, it actually seems like a really bad thing to do. I just tried it a couple times. <laughs> it takes away the time you have in the air. You definitely still get airborne, at least with the vehicle I'm using. 
and um, it takes away the time you have to adjust course in the air. So if you're off just a little bit, you just plummet straight off the course. Yep. Okay, so scratch what I said. That's not playing it safer than just going, taking the jump and going straight. No, I don't think so. In fact, I think maybe the safest way would be to hold back on the stick because it slows you down so much in the air. Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that is also a great way to lose the race. Going slow is, yeah. What gives Devil's Forest 2 its identity? I think it really does come from the uh, uh, up and down jumps. Those are at a sort of frequency and height that you don't see elsewhere in the game. So it makes for this neat little segment where you're going over these hills and or at least has the feel of one of the fastest segments in the game to me. And that pays off because the gentle camber I talked about before allows you to really milk that speed for a long time. And then the S at the end of the course kind of takes it away from you. Like it makes you reset uh, for the next lap. So it's not a pure drag race like Silence is. Yeah. It seems like a course you can mostly blaze through except for that one sharp S at the end. Well, not entirely because they're the, there's the death risk on the hills. You can't just blaze through them or you'll fly off the edge. You have to know what you're doing there. So I would say it's not a very strict course. It gives you a lot of leeway to take advantages for getting extra speed. And the only time it punishes that is in that one really specific way that kind of is going to affect everyone equally. So I would say it's one of the more freeform courses in the game. Okay. Now that we've applied Luke McMillan's metrics, let's review any feedback we have. How well did they parse the courses that we chose? Did you have any critique of the framework itself? One thing, before I get into that, I mean, I don't, I think one of the problems with it is very clearly evidenced by F0X, and that I don't think it's a good way to break down courses in this game. The reason for that is that speed is entirely opportunistic in F0X. Like, the racing line is incredibly variable. So, the problem with the concept of the racing line to me, especially the racing line as a level design metric for a track, is that it's not a fixed quality like the racing line is the solution to the track and in a game that is as mechanically simple as mario kart racing line might be somewhat meaningful because you really actually can hit the same path every time and actually even i think wave race uh it makes a lot of sense to talk about but when there's a huge flexibility to the speed that uh, a craft can travel, even forgetting like the 30 different craft. The racing line at 1,000 kilometers per hour is different than the racing line at 900 kilometers per hour. And if you miss the racing line on one turn, then you might come out of it at 900 kilometers per hour when you're expected to be at 1,000. And so you need to dynamically adjust your racing line 
for your current speed. So it is something that is so heavily circumstantial that I don't think looking at the racing line is like ever useful in F0X. Like it doesn't super matter how I get through turns. What matters is where I'm going to have opportunities to boost. So why I say I think beyond F0X, it's not that great a metric is that it's not a metric. Like, first of all, it just doesn't even literally meet the definition of a metric. It's not something you can measure. It is a curve, and more specifically, it's a function. I'm not even trying to be, like, dickishly technical about this. Like, in terms of game design, as I said, it's the solution that the player comes up with. And in terms of level design, it is a function of the characteristics of the course. So if you change the width of a course, the racing line changes. If you change the camber, the racing line changes. Uh, if you change the, well, I still don't really know what height is, but if you change the width and camber, those inform the racing line. So before I move on to the others, like what do you guys think about racing line? Do you think that's useful? Do you think that if you were designing a racing course, you would start from the racing line right so you actually had a lot of them you, you voiced a lot of the same things i was thinking about because i've been talking for i think literally ages now about how i wanted to use calculus to break down the course design for wave race yeah but the difficulty i had with that was one i don't have an exact unit of measurement for the width of wave race itself never mind that just the waves themselves kind of fuck everything up because they're so dynamic and they're based on time and your position to wave spotters, which another player can activate at a different time point. So besides that reading everything, things like drift, turning, handling, or wait, those are the same thing, whatever. And excel and your acceleration, you know, depending on how you're going through a race, those all change what the racing line is. That's why it feels so different to play Mariner in Wave Race 64 and how you need to approach those courses compared to uh, Jeter, or I'm sorry, what's what's the girl's name? I am whatever. Hayami? No, Hayami's the guy. Yeah. Oh, uh, Stuart. 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 That's right. Yeah, a very girly name, Stuart. So it's a last name. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> so even just in wave race, the concept of of a racing line is it's going to be like specific to the racer, and then at specific accelerations or velocities that are going at the time. The video that we saw that it uses is for a specific <clears throat> type of car and assume that they're all uniform and they're all the exact same and that you're going at that. And because the tracks are fixed, you're pretty much going at it in a fixed manner. And that's when the racing line applies. I would keep an idea of it in the game of, okay, how is this character expected to go through this turn? Because you do need to make, still make turns doable for every character and every build, right? Obviously, you don't want to have a high top speed character that can't, make a turn that has bad handling, right? That'd be stupid. There's, right. I think the biggest problem I have with it is that as a line, like, it doesn't even make intuitive sense because, you know, if I draw the quote-unquote racing line or the curve of best fit or, you know, we just look at, there are plenty of pictures of it uh, in this comment Sutra article that you can check out what we're talking about. Like, if you follow that line while drifting versus if you follow that line while 
sliding versus if you follow that line while boosting all give a different outcome to the turn, even though you're following the exact same line. So it's not a trait that is um, inherent to the course. At the heart of everything you're saying, and a misgiving that I had had about it as well, is that he sets up the article explaining vehicle dynamics and saying, like, for the rest of the article, we're just going to be talking about the course in the abstract, but it's important to understand that these are important because they will impact your car. And then the first metric he gives is the impact on your car and not something about the course itself. And I think it would be much, it would be more effective if he talked about how you construct turns or like maybe turn angle or something like that. Yeah. And then would explain clipping points as like you will have to compensate for the angle of the turn by finding certain clipping points or you know, by creating such and such a race line. That, yeah, yeah, that's kind of how I read it. I mean, this does seem to be as a sort of like a guide for a designer. That, that's the, the weird thing, though, is what Golem said, and this is what like ticked me off about the article, or not ticked me off, but uh, when I said in the chat earlier, like, oh, this is really going to be easy. He does exactly what I thought he was going to do. Which is, yeah, he sets it up like, this is all about how the track affects physics, and it has nothing to do with the player, and then he just, everything he defines has to do with, like, how the player is going to navigate it. So, yeah, turn angle, turn density, those are more in line with width and camber in terms of uh, measurable metrics. But, to be fair, I think Enough of what he says about the race line is useful and gives you ways to talk about turns that I don't think... Yeah, what he has here is still useful, even if maybe it's not characterized in the best way. He definitely has a certain type of game in mind, or it, it's, it's sort of taking... It's sort of assuming that we're not thinking about different types of cars, I guess. Well, he, he gets into that a little bit at the end, but it... Throughout the article, it sounds like he's leading up to a separate article on vehicle dynamics, which I've looked at his blog. I'm not sure if one exists yet. Oh, I don't think uh, I don't think so. Okay, I guess one thing you could take, or one thing I definitely took from it when I heard of the concept, is the idea that the fastest way through a turn isn't necessarily taking the shortest distance, because that's just not how cars work, because acceleration and turning. Yeah, yeah. Right. So actually, I think probably a better way of phrasing my complaint about how it applies to F-Zero is <clears throat> not really a complaint at all. He says, I'm going to talk about this in terms of pitch, y'all, and uh, roll. And F-Zero has more components to the control than that. Like, you're not just controlling turning. You're also, like, boosting just completely changes everything. Right. Hopefully we'll be able to talk about the vehicle dynamics in a second podcast. Yeah, I think that that would be a, a good subject. So going through the rest of this article, I, I mentioned earlier, I think he's missing some really important metrics. And again, it's not entirely fair because I didn't read the entire second segment. But stuff like terrain and borders, like those matter a lot. Or, or those find the course a lot like what happens when you go outside the width of a track right he simplifies the discussion by saying that any rough 
that's just the edge of the track and like it's understood that it's going to have some kind of penalty like you can't go there or it makes you slower or in f-zero's case you die but that's not interesting all we're interested in is like the track itself and it's taken for granted that it's somehow bad when you are off the track yeah and again i just i don't think that that's going to if you look at designing a track like that, I don't think you're ever going to get an interesting track out of that. Like, that is really important stuff. Like, that's where variety comes from, basically. The two course, or, yeah, the two games he talks about in uh, specific are highway racing games, where it's, you're on either on the road or you're hitting a uh, boundary. Okay. But even in those cases, uh, or I think Mario, Super Mario Kart's a good example, where there are times when hitting the boundary is what you want to do. You know, like how you can cut across the grass sometimes and it's faster? Oh, yeah. How would he account for that in his course model? Would that be part of the course as well, or would that be part of the hazard? So then you, you couldn't even model that. I think you're looking for more complexity than he was trying to tackle. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just looking for a complete model. Right. I mean, yeah, he, he does kind of open this up of, oh, arcade racers are super fun. They make us feel like we're awesome at driving. So here's how they kind of do that. And then he goes through those five points. Yeah, it's, it is true that I didn't read the part about the specific games. So maybe those are, that's all you need to talk about those two specific games. This is just criticism about the article, but he... Talks about a lot of stuff about defining it. Like, he never defines what entry and exit point mean in a term. He never defines actually what clipping point means. He defines what a clipping point means to the racer, but not what it actually is. And more importantly, he only defines an ideal clipping point. He never defines what, like, a clipping point as a general rule is. That sort of muddies that entire discussion. He gives a recommended width, which I thought was just really weird. Like, in defining the metric of width, he's like, each lane should be 1.6 car lengths, and each shoulder should be one car length, or something like that, or width, silent length. In OutRun 2, there's a highway stage, and I noticed that it actually is the width that he said, because you can pass people a lot easier than you can on, uh, you know, 95 or something like that. Well, didn't he say... He said something I'd never heard of before, but that I easily believe, which is that, like, it's taken for granted that third-person games should be modeled at 1.3 uh, yeah, yeah. reality. I remember that. Yeah, Camber, there was a whole thing about him not talking about pitch at all that I didn't really understand. And then height, he doesn't even define, or, like, it's just completely confusing what height is. Take it for granted that you get what he's talking about. Right. It, I thought that was by far the worst one. He just says, height variation in track design fulfills two distinct purposes, and then goes on to discuss the purposes. He doesn't say what height is. And Okay, his metric is height variation, not height specifically. But that doesn't help a lot when you don't know what that means or what height means standalone. So, like, I couldn't tell if that meant, like, sometimes you're on the second level of a track and can look down at it from below, 
like, is it height variation that I can change my camera angle in F-Zero X? <laughs> it actually is. It, it The way he talks about height variation, one, is it creates vistas or, you know, special viewpoints, and two, as it allows you to see further along the course. And so because you have the ability to change your camera angle to, like, way up in the sky, that hits one of his points of height variation. Right. So I think... Um more valuable metric in that place would be line of sight or area of sight. And then you would, in camber, you would put any discussion of like how a hill would impact your acceleration. I would probably just discuss roll and pitch of a course as separate topics. As a matter of fact, I think it's kind of interesting that he's like, uh, the properties of a car are roll, pitch, and yaw. And then the properties of a course are these totally different things when, in fact, you could just use roll, pitch, and yaw. Those are the metrics that you can – or those metrics still apply to a course. And best of all, they can be defined point-wise, whereas the problem with some of these, like height and racing line, is that you can only define them for an entire course. So height may mean nothing if there's nothing ahead to see. And racing line, as we said, totally changes the pace on, depending on what's going on in the race. So if you want metrics, I think you got to find stuff point-wise. Adrian, have you tried Death Race? No, I have not. I've been saving that one for a while, but I am going to play it. Is it canonical? I don't know. Is F0GX, does that take place after F0X or before? I think they do have specific years they're set in, so you can probably look it up. Oh, wow. Okay, because if F0X was the final game, then yeah, that means uh, I killed Samurai Goro for real this time. <laughs> <laughs> So yourself, have you played Death Race? I have mentioned before that I played F-Zero X a lot as a kid. This is one of the handful of games I had for N64. Uh, and at the time, I really liked Death Race. I thought it was awesome. So. And do you think it's canonical? Yeah, I mean, I played it growing up. So what are you, are you calling me a liar? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any final words, Adrian? Uh, well, I was, I was just going to throw in a random mark that it's interesting. Death Race isn't an F-Zero GX. I don't know why they didn't. It seems like something that's easy to in the game. Wait, does F-Zero GX actually have a Death Race? And I just completely forgot. I don't remember it being there, no. I mean, there is a... One of the chapters in the story mode is literally just Death Race. But I don't think it's a mode. Uh, you probably don't want real discussion of Death Race in this, but <laughs> I was going to say to me it's equivalent of the trick modes in Wave Race 64 where they take like one specific technical aspect of the race and isolate it into its own mode. It is also by far the most boring of those three. It really, I feel like Death Race would be cool if you could do it on the regular tracks. Oh, you can't? That's no, something. it's just one race, or just one specific track. Oh, because it's so much fun just killing people 
that are taking first place in the regular cups. I do it in the real races. <laughs> I... Yeah, that's, that's how I won King Standard. I literally killed the guy who was ahead of me, so he got zero points last round. I made off with 100, and I overtook him for first place. Yeah. It's a, not a bad strategy. Was, yeah, that was a, a pretty clutch moment there for me. It was so sweet. Sweet <laughs> victory. Nothing like getting a trophy after committing murder. <laughs> Alright, well those are some good final words. All music in this podcast is from F0X. I'll leave you with this final thought. Luke McMillan's metrics provide a helpful starting point for understanding race courses. However, when we use metrics or models to analyze something, could that introduce bias? Is it possible to miss conclusions we would otherwise find? Now that we've got our foot in the door, how would we find different ways of parsing race courses? If you have any comments or questions, please email vgcommune at gmail.com. <laughs>